Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of My JavaScript Story. This week, we're talking to Charles Lowell. Charles, do you want to say hi? Hello, everybody. Hey, Charles. I guess uh, we're uh, tokayos. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. No, not really. So I only I uh, encountered I was actually in a wedding in Mexico. Um, and there was another guy there um, who was Charles. He was, well, I actually went by Carlos because he's from Mexico. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, he was like, hey, somos tocayos. Like, we have the same name. So there's actually a term for that. Um, you know, a special relationship that people share when they have the same name. It's like, hey, tocayo. So you can call me that and uh, I can call you that. And people think we're weird. Sounds good to me. People are <laughs> weird. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Um, yeah. Do you want to just give a brief introduction to who you are? I, I mean, I, when we were chatting before the show, uh, you, you run a consultancy called the front side. Mm-hmm. Um, we had you on episode, uh, I have it right in front of me here and I don't have it right in front of me anymore. Um, but you were on Re- uh, react roundup. We talked about, um, state management we're, library. Yeah. We we're talking about state management and microstates. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I think we've had you on JavaScript Jabber as well, but I, for whatever mm-hmm. reason, looked that one up. So anyway, we'll put looks, links to those in the show notes. But yeah, do you want to just uh, tell people what I missed as far as who you are? Yeah. So um, my name's Charles Lowell. I've uh, been, gosh, a developer for a really long time now. Um, and I've been, uh, I've worked in all kinds of languages, um, but uh, I've been for the last 10 years or so, running uh, the front side and what we specialize in is user interfaces and kind of the deep uh, architecture behind stateful applications, stateful interfaces. Um, Cause it turns out that there's a lot there. Nice. And yeah, um, I did find those episode numbers. So JavaScript Jabber 337 and React Roundup 28. Mm-hmm. And I think we had Taras on both of those. Yeah. Yeah. So he's uh, um also uh, at the front side. And yeah, we've been talking a lot about microstates lately because that's the kind of thing that we're infatuated with. Yeah, well, it seems like the, um, what, like five, 10 years ago, the fr- uh, framework space kind of heated up and then uh, React came out with a bunch of ideas that everybody else said, that's a really good idea and went with them. So it heated up again. And now things are kind of settling on the, uh, framework front, you know, people will go and try mm-hmm. Vue or React or Angular and, you know, figure out what they like, but they're all pretty stable. And it's the state management stuff now that people are going, oh man, uh, yeah, you know, it's, yeah, people it's such a pain or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so much more to developing 
a stateful user interface than the view library. Yeah. Uh, and so there really are, there's so many pillars in this platform, all the way from the state management to how you, how you build your assets and how you deploy to your servers. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's interesting to kind of get, oh, well, here are some trade-offs that we found and, and talk about some of those things that you're talking about. So um, mm -hmm. that's not what this show's about, but it, if you want to get those conversations, uh, we'll put links in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, let's, let's get your story. It's always interesting to me too, to get in and talk to somebody who's running a business, be it a consultancy or a, you know, some kind of uh, startup and, and, and just what you work on and what your concerns are and how you wound up there. So um, I'm, I'm going to take you way back though, to when you got into programming. Okay. Boy, you know, um, it was a long, long time ago. Um, That's what I tell people now, yeah, I think it's, you know, it was, it was, it was a long time ago, but it was accidental. Um, I happened to be, you know, very, very lucky, I think, um, in terms of how I kind of stumbled into programming. Um, and so I guess, um, I didn't really have any particular, uh, idea to pursue a career in programming, but, I just so happened that the time that I was 18 um, was happened to coincide with the dot, the dot com boom. So I was actually studying chemistry. Uh, my plan was to become like a chemist uh, and do research, probably maybe stay in academia, maybe go into like pharmaceutical companies, um, do something like that. It's, it's strange to actually think about that person because that's so far <laughs> away from uh, the career in which I ended up. Um, but I was home for, from college one summer and I think this was in 1995 or 1996. And uh, a friend of mine's father was doing a startup and it was like, hey, you know how to turn on a computer. You know, you know you'll work for $8 an hour. Uh, can you go, <laughs> can you come do HTML uh, for me? And I think that that was when I say, you know, I really stumbled in on it, I was lucky. I think that was, there was a moment there um, where you, if you, you know, happen to be a particular age, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, happen to have, you know, know people who were doing startups, um, you were able to kind of ride that wave. And so, uh, and, and as we all know, it crashed about five years later, but by that point I was five years into a development career and had, you know, I started with doing HTML and then HTML, uh, ultimately turns into Perl at that time. <laughs> you, it seems like you couldn't avoid it. Um, and so, and then, uh, so I was doing um, essentially server-based applications. Um, that, I mean, they were still doing forms over HTML, but right. in all in Perl. Uh, and so after I'd been doing that for a while, I decided, you know what, I'm, and, and incidentally, I dropped out of college um, to work on this startup. And, um, you so, and Bill Gates, so it's fine. <laughs> well, he ended up in a little bit better circumstances uh, than I do. I did, Maybe. but you know, on the whole, I'm pretty happy with where I, I landed, so I can't complain. Um, but I, you know, I had I had been doing programming in HTML and Perl, and uh, so I decided to actually go back to college. And at this point, I got my degree in computer science. Um, so I do actually have a computer science degree, but I only had one after I was developing for, um, for many, many years. Oh, wow. Um, That's awesome. 
Yeah. <laughs> I love all um, the people. Do I need a CS degree? And you just turned that completely on its head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I think, um, you know, it just, it, it just, it just happened to work out that way. Um, and so let's see. So after I, um, and interestingly enough, I ended up leaving college again before graduating. Um, but then I, did, I came back and graduated. I did, I did actually get a degree, but I wasn't, it wasn't until I was almost 30. Um, but uh, <clears throat> so I went to work for um, a company called ThoughtWorks. Um, and yep. I don't know if, you know, some, some people have heard of it. Some of, some of them didn't. Um, I think this was in 2002 uh, is when I went to work for ThoughtWorks. And again, I think I was very lucky uh, in the sense that I landed there because at ThoughtWorks, I learned not only how to develop code. I think I was kind of introduced to the professional love of my life, which is user interfaces. Um, and so, you know, at ThoughtWorks at that time, they had just hired Martin Fowler. They were very into the, the whole agile thing. Uh, it was a very supportive environment for doing things like test driven development. And so they were willing to create the space. If you said, I, as a developer, I need, I'm going to try and do this project test first. And I have no idea how I'm going to do this. Um, you know, your manager at, the, at ThoughtWorks would say, okay, but that's okay. We're going to create the space for you to do that. So that if it takes you two extra weeks to bang on this problem uh, and do it test first, we're going to support you in that. And so I was able to learn these skills of doing test first, continuous integration, um, pre preferring shipping something and then iterating it over having the perfect design and also understanding the business context uh, around the software that you were developing because it was a consultancy and ultimately they were trying to solve business problems. So I think I was actually very lucky in the sense that I got to uh, go work there. And it was actually on this project. I was doing mostly backend systems in Java and it was on this project that we, I was put on a team to develop the user interface for a point of sale system. And it was a touchscreen. This is 2003. So it was before, for the iPhone um, and, and everything like that. But it was a touchscreen interface that was that clerks were gonna be using at an electronics company to sell stuff. Uh, and I immediately fell in love um, with being able to create the part of the software that humans interact with. I just thought that was so magical uh, as opposed to software talking to other software. And I mean, that's interesting and it's critical, but for me, there was just something about writing the software that would be directly interfacing with people. Um, and so that, you know, uh, you have certain moments in your career where you're like, wow, this is, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Um, That's interesting. And it's, uh, we've had a number of thought workers on the show and I, I find it really interesting that, yeah, that they open things up and it's like, okay, these are the things that we've kind of adopted as core technologies or core practices. And then these are the things that we're experimenting with. And if somebody brings something else in, they're, they're totally willing to try it mm -hmm. to, to stay mm -hmm. ahead of the curve. I, I think that is very forward thinking. And a lot of companies kind of get stuck where they are. And then it's, okay, how do we update this mainframe that we've had for 300 years? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they've done, they do a really great job of lowering the cost of experimentation 
mm-hmm. so that you can so you can keep abreast. You know, I think that the the radar that they put out is a great example of that. You know, it's not just go out and adopt wildly anything, but be very studious and intentful about the the technologies that you're tracking, the technologies that you're using, and the technologies that you're throwing away. Um, yeah, we've had Neil Ford on to talk about the mm-hmm. technology radar that they do with ThoughtWorks, and yeah, it's it's really interesting because yeah, then they're actually having the conversations not just about how do we do things, but you know where do we want to wind up? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so it, I think it's a great company. I know they've uh, gotten both applause and criticism uh, over the years, but I can definitely say that my experience there was extremely positive, and that the skills that I learned there have literally lasted me an entire career. Nice. So, how did you get into JavaScript then? I mean, <laughs> I, I guess it's a natural move mm-hmm. for... from Java into JavaScript. No, <laughs> I have that comment. So you have a show about JavaScript. Is that like Java? You know, <laughs> Just add five letters. That's that's, was, that's right. Uh, no, but a natural move from user interface into JavaScript. But mm-hmm. but yeah. even then, I mean, you're it talking didn't happen overnight, though. Well, yeah. And uh, my career in programming started around 2004, 2005, 2006. Around then was when I was getting into web development. And JavaScript was kind of the redheaded stepchild that you dealt with because you had to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so that was how actually, do you get into that? That was still my attitude because at this point, you know, that interface that I was developing was this Swing, which is the old oh, right. Java toolkit library. So it was very fat client and it was analogous to, uh, I guess, you know, um, what would be what would be the, the equivalent? Um, there was WX Windows, which was an open source C++ library. Yeah. Uh, it was very these heavy native widget based things. I guess the most the, the the biggest analogy would be the native widget sets that you would use on Windows or Mac uh, mm-hmm. or or uh, GTK um, if you were doing that. So that was the kind of applications um, that I was working with. And so my actual journey to JavaScript was pretty circuitous because I ended up leaving ThoughtWorks, traveling around for a couple of years on a motorcycle in South America. It was actually, I had a little Linux laptop and someone from ThoughtWorks met me in Cartagena and was like, dude, you've got to learn Ruby. It's this really cool language. It's everything that we always, it solves all the problems that we ever hated about Java. And so I sat with in this little hotel room in Cartagena with him and over the course of like two or three weeks learned Ruby. I got my start on Ruby. Obviously you don't learn a, a language over, over weeks, but that kind of, that ignited a passion in me for Ruby. And I'm these, curious and who that was. Uh, his name was Jeremy Stell Smith. Um, okay. He's a he's a former thought worker. Uh, he worked. He was. If you ever heard of the Nordstrom uh, Lab, um, he was he was uh, involved with that. Uh, fantastic, absolutely fantastic guy. Um, I learned a lot from him. Just mm-hmm. in terms of he was had such a go get him hustle attitude to development. He's you know any project he's just like let's do it. Yeah, and Ruby's where I got my start. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that introduced me into to Ruby, and that was probably 2004 uh, timeframe. Um, and so then I, that was my introduction to Ruby. And then when I got back to the States, um, I decided I was going to start working in Ruby. And <clears throat> so I was building out a, a, a toy application to help um, using Ruby on Rails, which is brand new at that point. Uh, this is like 
pre 1.0. <laughs> <And laughs> nice. I very distinctly remember, you know, JavaScript for me was this, keep it at a, at a, at arm's length. Um, right. It's, you know, it is, I didn't really consider it as a serious, it was something that you would throw up alert boxes for. You could do a little bit of mm -hmm. DHTML. I had done some JavaScript, but why use JavaScript when you've got Swing, when you've got WX Windows, when you've got all these really powerful native widget sets. And I was using to deploy this Ruby on Rails application. I was using a cloud management tool called Plesk. And which I don't even know if it exists anymore. It was kind of one of these control panels. Uh -huh. And I still remember this moment. I was clicking on a link and they used JavaScript to throw up a waiting dialogue. And so it was this, it was such a simple interaction. And it was so clear to me as a developer that what they were doing was just putting, styling a div, but I had this, Eureka moment where I realized, oh my goodness, divs can just be used for normal layout. I can write mm -hmm. a dialog box and fundamentally this thing is just a div and there really is no difference between HTML and a native toolkit. Um, and, and JavaScript is the glue that puts it together. And I think that, you know, I certainly was not the first to have this aha moment. Obviously I, the people who wrote this thing that caused the aha moment in me, you know, it had occurred to them too. And it was such a simple thing. And all they did was use JavaScript to throw up a waiting dialogue that then was there until the, the next link loaded. So they had, they were listening to some page navigation event and throwing up the dialogue. But that was, you know, it, it really kind of, there, there are these moments where you, the, the curtain is drawn back and you can see this world of possibility. And so, right. yeah. And so that was, probably about in 2004. And so my journey with JavaScript began probably about a month or two after my journey with Ruby uh, began. And so, um, you know, and, and coming where I did as, as wanting to make um, uh, user interfaces, I saw this as a possibility of, you know, um, uh, <clears throat> being able to unify the ease of deployment of web applications with these really rich stateful in a, uh, applications. Um, and so I think that, you know, over the years, so that was probably, gosh, about 15 years ago. And, you know, I think just recently, like you said, in the last five years, I think the experience of trying to deliver good user experiences has now finally JavaScript environments are up to par with where like the native clients were in 2003. Um, I would say that that inflection point for me was about 2014. <laughs> um, and, but it was, God, it was 10 years of, of, you know, of chasing that. And so I did a, uh, a lot of JavaScript stuff um, in the meantime. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you must've been a weirdo cause I didn't hear anybody talking about <laughs> Yeah. You know, having a job as a front end developer and liking it until yeah. You know, 2012, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Early. Well, so that, that, and even then they couldn't find a job doing it full time. <laughs> the, the whatever backend developer and kind of sneak it in. Yeah. Well, I think it was because I had all this experience doing this stuff with native applications in Java and C plus plus that, um, 
I was able to, to, to kind of make that connection or when, when, I mean, when other people made the connection, I was able to say, Oh yeah, I get that. This is going to be, this is going to be big. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, shortly after that I founded Frontside um, and it was originally, it was actually originally founded as a company to build frameworks for doing uh, front end development. It was founded in 2005. Um, it wasn't really a consulting company until around 2009, 2010. Um, but it was, you know, we, we formed the company to sell a JavaScript framework that was, if I had to, to compare it to anything you would see today, I would say it was very close to Meteor. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and um, we were trying to sell it commercially, but I think 2005 was about the last year that you could actually sell a framework commercially because uh, right. open source ate everything. So we really didn't, uh, that, that landed flat and ended up chewing through all of my life savings. Um, and so <laughs> uh, we ended up having, you know, we ended up doing consulting and um, uh, to kind of pay the bills. And it's a common, common tale, uh, but that's, yeah. that's what happened to us. I'm I'm really curious. So first of all, yeah, I mean, how do you decide this is the right time to go ahead and build a framework? Because what was the time frame around there? What, 2010? The time, it was about 2000. No, 2010 is about when we started doing consulting. This is about, this is 2005. Uh, so we had been building uh, an application um, as part of a startup mm-hmm. and, <clears throat> um, and, that had Ruby on the back end, had Java on the back end, and we were doing a lot of heavy JavaScript. So we had implement, we had implemented our own CSS parser, um, just so it. that we could actually style components and have them scoped. And so a lot of the things that you see now um, that are just very commonplace uh, is the kind of things that we were doing. We actually had when I say it was uh, it was similar to Meteor, um, we actually had stateful the stateful server in Java that was actually running a Java interpreter uh, that was, um, or sorry, a JavaScript interpreter that was embedded into Java. So we were using the Rhino uh, JavaScript engine <laughs> wow. and the front end could actually send JavaScript commands to the, to the, um, the server and it would interpret them as JavaScript. And so you could actually control, you would have these stateful widgets that were allocated on the server that had peers on the client. And so it was really just incredible, trippy stuff that we were able to, to do. Um, and so we thought, well, what, man, this is such incredible capability. We ought to sell this stuff. And it was actually my experience developing and trying to sell our own framework that I was like, when, when Meteor came out, I was like, nope, not gonna, <laughs> not gonna do it. Uh, I've, uh, I've been there and tried to do that. Um, yeah, maybe, it's hard to compete with free. Mm-hmm. So, um, but uh, it was, but, but throughout that whole time, I think that time, especially where we were running a lot of JavaScript on the server, we were, we were um, running JavaScript in Java and JavaScript in Ruby too, um, <laughs> is when, you know, I really fell in love with JavaScript really hard because I, I think it's, it's, I think one of the things that makes JavaScript so unique that people maybe don't realize or take for granted is when you think about it, and here we have this environment, right? Where we're running JavaScript on the browser, running JavaScript on the client server, not, not, not like the, the main process is in Java and the main process is in Ruby, but these Ruby processes and Java processes are interpreting the JavaScript is that you have with, 
it's a it's a language whose entire con- conception is to be able to run untrusted code. I think that's like something that maybe gets overlooked. That that it's really the only environment where you have on your computer and you're just like, hey, just give me a bunch of code from randomly over the internet. <laughs> yep. Just give me give me everything. It's just run it from anywhere and I'll just give it to me and I'll execute it and it's gonna be fine. You know, it's not gonna thrash the CPU. Well, it can, but I can put limits on it. Um, I can control how much memory it's gonna use and I can control what resources it has access to and it's totally secure. I mean, yeah, we've got some scripting attacks and everything like that, but mm-hmm. it by and large, it's gonna be fine. And we were actually really taking advantage of that by having the client sending JavaScript to the server and the server sending JavaScript to the client and they're all happily, you know, exchanging JavaScript and running, you know, and it was all fine. Um, and so it's it just, it, it, it really is, it was really fun to play with. Yeah, I'll bet. Hey guys, let me tell you about Clubhouse. I swear, I've used every project management software there is out there and I hated project management software. Now I have Clubhouse. Overall, it's simple and straightforward to use, but it has enough of the integrations and power features you need to get the job done without getting confusing. This means that I can use it and the non-technical members of my team can figure out what they need from it. It also makes it easy for me to zoom out and see what's going on overall before zooming back in and specifying more work that needs to be done or picking the next task for me to tackle. They integrate with all the systems that you'd expect and have a REST API for, well, the rest. If you go to https clubhouse.io slash jsstory, you can get two months free instead of the standard 14-day trial for any team size. Once again, that's https clubhouse.io slash jsstory. So what was the transition like then from we're going to build this uh, framework, we're going to put it out there, people are going to start using us and pay, using it and paying us for it. How was that transition from product to consulting? Was it pretty natural or were there bumps? I think, it was, I think it was very natural um, just because I think that I'm a much more natural consultant than I am a product mm-hmm. person. Um, so I am fundamentally a technologist um, and the people at Frontside at that time were technologists. And the, I, like, I mean, the, the, you did see people marketing frameworks at that time. You don't really see that anymore now. No. Um, but we just didn't have, we didn't even have the, uh, we didn't even have the, the insight to know that this thing was gonna drop off a cliff uh, and we didn't really care. Um, and that's not, n- not having an understanding of your market, not really caring <laughs> what, the, what the market will and will right. not bear, like that, that a good business does not make. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't argue with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, so it was very natural uh, in the sense that we couldn't get, we had all this technology and we had people willing to try it, but no one willing to buy it. Um, so mm-hmm. I didn't make a single sale. Uh, and so, you know, we decided, Hey, let's, let's build something. Let's try and build something with this. Um, when that didn't work out, we just, you know, getting, getting work for being a JavaScript expert uh, mm-hmm. and a Ruby expert was, there was a lot of work for that at that time. Um, when, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that was pretty close to the time when I went freelance. Mm-hmm. If, if you're talking around like 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. 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 And yeah. yeah, I mean, what's funny is, as you talk about it, it was pretty natural and there was a lot of work. I went out free, I got laid off. And I convinced mm-hmm. my wife 
that um, I wanted to go freelance and of course she freaked out, right? Where, how are we going to pay the bills? And it turned out that, yeah, there was plenty of work and it was a really natural transition just because, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's pretty straightforward. I, I, do, I write code, you pay me, I pay my bills. And as long as that equation kind of balances, then you're mostly okay and you can get yeah. away with fudging on a lot of things to get there as long as you keep your clients happy. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, um, so it, it, it made a lot of sense for us and, and that was what we were good at. Uh, we understood the technology mark market. Mm-hmm. Uh, we understood we were able to perceive trends, long-term trends uh, about what was going to be a healthy technology and what wasn't. And, you know, we had developed pretty good taste, uh, <clears throat> you know, over, over this time period. Um, and, and, you know, we always had our fundamentals. Uh, and so we just decided to, to, to focus the business around that. Um, I'm curious so, how you do that. Cause, uh, um, I, you know, we talked about Brandon Hayes a little bit, um, uh, mm-hmm. before he, he worked at Frontside and mm-hmm. he seemed fairly involved in more than just writing the code, you know, more involved. Oh, in absolutely. Stuff. Uh, but how how do you make those decisions? Because I remember that he was way into Ember for a long time, mm-hmm. and that turned out not to be the major market winner. I mean, there's plenty of work out there for it, but yeah, know. I mean, it, it depends on what you it depends on what you see as the major market winner. Um, right. And I think that's one of the that's one of the the pieces of value that we can provide, uh, or that we we provide um, is I still to this day, if you are a uh, startup, if you're working by yourself, I would probably recommend Ember uh, as your best bet. Uh, If you're one or two developers um, who are trying to actually start a business and it's not a technology business, uh, I would recommend Ember uh, as as the go-to. In fact, we did an Ember project uh, just last year. Uh, You know, that was, we we wrapped up uh, an Ember project at the end of last year and and we kind of looked at the options and we looked at the development team and we said, you know, you've got six weeks to deliver this huge piece of functionality. Um, and every other concern is pretty secondary. <laughs> uh, you know, you've got to get to market. Right. And I still think that Ember actually, if you have a, uh, an experienced Ember team, um, or you've got people who are not front-end developers, uh, that Ember is absolutely your best bet. And so, you know, but we also, obviously, I would say the last couple of years has been dominated by doing React work, um, just because that's, you know, that's a technology that a lot of teams have chosen um, yeah. for whatever reason. And, and just being able to un- understand the, the kind of overarching business context and, and uh, look past, you know, is there a popularity contest among JavaScript developers? Because as important as, you know, being a JavaScript developer, we are very, very important but our preferences and our tastes um, are not necessarily the most pressing business concern for a startup that's trying to make it or, you know, a, a, a business that's trying to accomplish some goal. Um, yeah, that's totally true. Um, I think a lot of people just go with what they know mm-hmm. and, you know, until yeah, I mean, you, you wind up take- with a reactor view or whatever, and that's not a bad way to make the decision, but mm-hmm. It's definitely yeah. an interesting, yeah, an interesting dynamic there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, I mean, um, again, 
not to get into like uh, into framework preferences because I think you know at this point we kind of we like to work we we like to work with most of them. We actually haven't done much view work, um, but I am I am curious to get into that. Yeah, I I'm getting into view myself. Actually, that's the one mm -hmm. that I've kind of been going after, and mm -hmm. um, you know a lot of it has to do with who I'm talking to. But yeah, um, it's funny because React still has a larger market share, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I haven't taken the time to learn it. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think they haven't taken the time to learn, to learn which view react react. I mean, the thing is, is I, a lot of it is again, comparing apples to oranges. I think you take, you look at something like angular and you compare it to react and it really is. I don't think it's a valid comparison because frameworks like angular, like Ember. And I think, you know, more and more, this is true about view. Uh, is that they're really trying to be a platform, not mm -hmm. so much a framework. Uh, so the concerns that you, they're trying to solve the problems that you're going to have as a UI developer developing stateful JavaScript applications from your command line tools to your editor integration to internationalization to continuous integration and delivery to, you know. And, That's totally and, fair. To state management. And so, you know, I think, it, you know, um, I think you're right, especially as you look at some of these things like mm -hmm. Angular going into native script or React mm -hmm. Native or right. you now runs on native script. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. they, they manage a certain layer of things, but it doesn't even have to be web anymore. Right. So it is a right. platform. Right. It's a platform, and the view layer is one absolutely critical pillar of that platform. Yeah. Uh, but it is one pillar uh, and there are, there are a lot of pillars. Cause if you think about the things that you do as a developer to actually ship an application, mm -hmm. writing view code is, I hope a very small fraction of it. Um, and I mean, view as in the actual, what it looks like. <laughs> right. Um, and, 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 you know, so, so I think that, um, you know, Ryan Florence wrote this, probably one of my favorite blog posts that's, you know, you can't not have a framework. Everyone who hasn't read it, I'm sure everybody already has read it, but you should go read it. The same truth applies for a platform. Uh, you can't not have a platform. And so you need to think about what the platform that you have is accomplishing for you. Um, and first understanding what it is. Uh, because whether you're using React or you're using Angular or you're using Vue, you have you have a platform that is encompassing uh, of that framework or that library, um, and so it it definitely pays to think about that too. Yeah. I love Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> he is definitely one of those interesting people out there in the mm -hmm. uh, community. Done a lot in React, done a lot in Ember, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. Yep. I remember yeah, no, I was at a it was a JavaScript conference and uh, went, wound up going to lunch with the same group that he did. And uh, he had just gotten into react. And I remember it was funny because uh, he was just raving about react. And I'm like, I thought you were way into Ember. And he looks at me and with no, it just deadpan Ember's crap. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, Oh, come on. I'm like, really? I'm like you, you, you used to rant and rave about how often it, no, Ember's crap. And, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, but you know, what about some of the other ones? What about Angular's crap? 
and yeah, and and he's done a ton of stuff in React. So yeah, anyway, it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's just funny because everybody has these opinions, and it it really does boil down to, you know, what you want your um, platform to feel like and look like and run like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, a lot of them are very very different uh, stylistically. I mean, you, know, uh, I would say stylistically, especially later, later, um, you know, in my career especially as I've really gotten into functional programming, because I think that's something, you know, to, to bring the conversation back to JavaScript is, uh, it's something that I think is JavaScript enables, um, like a pretty, I consider awesome form of, of functional programming. Um, I right. think you can, I think you can, it, it, it is definitely, uh, it's definitely possible and I think fun um, to, to do it that way. And I think that the React taste as a community is more geared towards that. But that said, so I, you know, in terms of the microstructure of the code, I find my personal preference more aligned with, you know, the React community. But in terms of the macroscopic structure of the code, I find myself more aligned with an Angular or a Vue. So I think, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of room for nuance uh, in there because I don't think that, I, I, I think that React code bases um, on the macroscopic level, tend towards being fractured, uh, having a lot of different patterns, right. and uh, using a lot of different technologies. So, you know, it's it's. Um, I think as a developer, there's room enough to contain worlds <laughs> of opinions um, that sometimes are not necessarily in alignment with each other. Well, the other thing that I find interesting is that um, a lot of people make these decisions you know, am I going to use Ember or React or Angular View or something else? And the only way that you're going to 100% know that it's the best decision for your application is to build your application in all of them and then know which one is the best one. And that's just not practical. It doesn't make any sense. And so you kind of have to make these judgment calls. So even if you build a smallish app in each of them or, you know, do some level of something with them, you know, ultimately there's just no way. So what you wind up doing is you wind up, you know, doing some kind of audition for the ones that you're interested in using and then hoping you pick the best one. And then as you build out your application, eventually the complexity is going to run up against the boundaries of what the, what your platform is good at. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and so then when you wind up working around enough issues, you know, then you decide whether or not it's the best choice for the next application you have to build. And I just don't know if you do any better than that. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a problem that we've been confronting, uh, you know, over the last couple of years as, as you say, as the platform wars kind of settle down. Um, and one of the things that we try and do uh, as a company that works, you know, on multiple platforms, you know, we're constantly switching the platform, mm-hmm. and w- which we're working on and switching that context and really is trying to deepen the integration with just the vanilla environment. So how much of your application can you write in vanilla JavaScript? How much of your application can you use that just uses regular classes instead of, you know, MobX objects or Ember objects or Mm -hmm. uses the Vue reactivity system or the Angular reactivity system? How can you express your application both in terms of its state and, you know, how it manages its effects? Can you do that outside of the, of the platform so that it can be so that it's portable from one platform to the other because ideally right if you've got a good platform you should be able to set new stuff on top of it uh regardless of 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 what that is 
Now you sound like Chris Ferdinandi from JavaScript Jabber. Oh yeah. He, he advocates a lot of vanilla JS stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I think it's, it's incredible what you can accomplish uh, with, with vanilla JS. Yeah. But I do think that the integration into your platform does have to be convenient. Like mm-hmm. it's, I remember when uh, Redux, for example, came out, um, you know, a good, good friend of mine, Torin Billups, uh, maintained the um, bindings for Ember Redux. And I think that, you know, um, despite all the good work that he did, it didn't really get a huge amount of adoption inside of the Ember community just because right. it didn't feel idiomatic. Uh, and so it is, it can be a lot of work to really narrow down an abstraction so that it can be projected into a different framework or platform and still feel like that platform. I think, right. I think it can be done, but it requires you have to hone it and tune it. And, you know, sometimes you'd be like, oh, this thing that it does, that's really only geared so that it can solve this use case. So we need to whittle it down a little more and hopefully you can whittle it into something useful and not whittle it away till there's nothing there. Right. Uh, but that's, that's a lot of the work that we're trying to do with microstates. Um, mm-hmm. And so that you can have state management that will work really will work anywhere. Um, you know, and I'm right now I'm working on uh, a concurrency, a structured concurrency library uh, so that you can manage the, you know, the, the concurrent effects inside your application without having to have a specific framework integration. Right. Um, but it means you have to really, it takes a long time and you have to really dig down and solve these things at a, at, at a fundamental level. Yeah, absolutely. You want it to feel like it belongs with everything else in your application. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I, I'm curious, uh, you know, when you've kind of segued into the next segment, what are you working on these days? Um, so what are we working on? Um, Besides so what moving. Am, what am I, <laughs> I hear you're moving. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to be moving. I spent a lot of, uh, a considerable amount of 2018 and a considerable amount of 2019 will be moving first to New Mexico and then back. Um, right. But what I'm personally working on uh, is, a, is, is the microstates um, state management library. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that is, is a library to rep it in the context of user interface uh, and processes. It's really a way to very efficiently model state machines uh, so that you can immutably transition your state from one point to another Mm -hmm. uh, and have them be above all composable. So uh, if it's, it's very similar, I would say in paradigm to Redux at the macro level in the sense that you have essentially one value that is being rolled forward over time. Um, However, where it differs is that instead of it being one monolithic value, you can very, that is, you have one monolithic value and one monolithic reducer function. Uh, And I use this analogy just because I think when it comes to uh, immutable architecture, what most people understand is the Redux architecture. Um, Being able to compose that into essentially very small, um, small pieces of state that are attached to their reducers. Um, And so that's how it started. But then you realize what you're essentially expressing is the concept of type. Uh, So if I have a 
let's say if I, I'm in a Redux store, I have a string, there are only a certain number of reducers that are valid for that string, right? They're, they are the string operations, the string algebra, if you will. And so, you know, a string can concat, a string uh, can be split, a string can do all these things. And so rather than just throw that away and say, you know, we're only gonna see if this is a string action and then run the string reducer, we just say, hey, this, is a, this, this type, this data is typed. And so it has a set of implicit operations. And so, not, so I can compose that data and compose that as operations to build bigger and bigger atoms of state. Um, and so that's the, I know that's, I maybe used a, lot, a little bit of jargon, but if you could think of it as a composable, reusable redux. Um, and so then there's that. And so if you have that, you should be able to use that pretty much anywhere. Um, right. uh, and so then I'm using, we're using that to be able to express uh, state machines. Um, and then we're also being able, using that to um, try and uh, develop a um, structured concurrency uh, library that you should be able to use anywhere. Um, that sounds so that, cool. Yeah. We discussed a lot of this on um, React Roundup and JavaScript mm -hmm. Jabber. So if you want a more in-depth or you're, you're sitting there and going, I don't know if I completely understand, go listen to that because I, I think mm -hmm. it's explained a little mm -hmm. better there. Yeah, yeah. But, but the idea is that, you know, to try and extract the concept of state management and mm -hmm. give the best solution, um, you know, that, that, that we can certainly find um, that's the most portable that, you know, it, it uses nothing but, you know, kind of simple JavaScript classes and uh, things like that. Um, the other thing that I'm working on is uh, <clears throat> a structured concurrency library, which I just started uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, but I'm really, really excited about the whole concept. Uh, I don't know if, if um, anybody's read the um, blog on the trio library from Python. Uh, it's very illuminating. Um, I had a, uh, a leg up just having worked in Ember and worked with the Ember concurrency library it was written by Alex Matchner, uh, who is just an incredible developer, incredibly bright guy, uh, and a wonderful fellow. Um, you know, he developed this concurrency library for Ember, uh, which I think is really is a gold standard for any concurrency library, um, that, uh, that you, you care to work with. But the whole concept is, um, so mind-blowing and yet so obvious once you see it um, that, yeah, I would recommend it. I would recommend everybody to read up as much as they can on structured concurrency because it solves so many of the problems uh, that you have <laughs> that you didn't know you had. Um, so I could, yeah. Uh, so the, um, the, the, the blog on Trio, it's on Vorpus. I think it's vorpus.com or something like that. Uh, it's the, by the author of the trio library. I think it said go to considered harmful is the name of the post. And it just does a great job of explaining why structured concurrency is a solution to a problem that keeps coming up and how you can relate it to problems that you've had in the past. Um, Alex's initial introduction to Ember concurrency uh, is a similar thing um you you know it's it's all of the example code is in ember um so you might have to do a little bit of translation but it also is a really great job 
of explaining the symptoms of like, oh, I'm feeling this pain, right? You've got this, you're getting whacked over the head <laughs> by these bugs mm -hmm. and you don't even understand the root cause and he comes and just shines a light right on it. Um, so that's really exciting. And I think it's something that I would, you know, it's something that we think about in all of our applications these days um, is how do we st structure our side effects? Uh, and it's something that, you know, I hope that we can bring to, to more people. Um, I think Very another cool. thing that I'm working on uh, is a little bit more, um, a little bit more humble, but it's uh, in, in terms of, the, the scope of the JavaScript library, but it's just one of the most fun that I've had, uh, fun times I've had working with, and we use it in microstates. Uh, and we actually use it in, um, uh, inside the side effects library too, um, is uh, <clears throat> a generation uh, JS, which is just a little library to um, compose JavaScript iterators. So I think that when I found JavaScript Iterator, I think it's one of the most unsung APIs that we have because uh, it touches on all these, all of the collection classes. It's the same API that's presented by generator functions. Uh, and this is a little library to help you just wrap any iterable, anything that has the symbol.iterator interface and you can map it and you can reduce it and you can filter it and you can do all of your fun array and map and collection and APIs, except it's lazy. It's, um, and, and it's, it's universal. Uh, so that, that's been, that's probably some of the most fun I've had writing JavaScript in a while. Nice. And so now I don't, I never work with iterators without it. Cool. Well, how do people find you online? Um, you can, yeah, so you can on GitHub, on Twitter, uh, on Cowboy D. It's short for Cowboy Dan. It's a nickname I got at the University of Michigan, I think just because I was from Texas. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but I got it when I got my first email address and it stuck with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. So Cowboy D on Twitter and GitHub. Uh, and I think frontside.io slash about slash Charles dash Lowell. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to push this over to Pix. Do you have some things you want to shout out about on the show? Uh, sure. Um, I thought about this and I think certainly using recency bias as the biggest factor I would say would have to be musician. Um, I am having so much fun with that app. It's if you haven't heard about it, it's, uh, app for Android and iOS, and it's like Guitar Hero, except in real life, but on steroids and helping you actually learn music. Uh, so it, you know, it has five different modes. It's got guitar, it's got bass, it's got ukulele, it's got piano, it even has a voice component. And you can play along and practice with the ukulele tablatures. I'm using the the... <clears throat> I'm using the, the um, I'm doing the, the uke mode and um, <clears throat> it's just absolutely brilliant because my favorite thing is it has a practice mode where you can hone in on a very small window of the music. So you can say highlight two measures and if you've got a particularly hard lick or a hard sequence of notes, you can just focus it on those two measures. You can slow it way down 
and you can set the parameters and say, hey, if I get over 95% of the notes right, I want you to increase the speed by 5%. And so you can oh, just, nice. it's just got the ability to burn in muscle memory. And so I've been playing ukulele for 15 years, but in terms of the fine motor skills, this practice mode has helped me burn in the, 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 burn in the chords and burn in the note transitions so that I feel so much more comfortable using my pinky finger than I ever have doing stretches and, and things like that. It's just the workout mode is just phenomenal. So if you ever thought about picking up an instrument, um, you should definitely check this out because it starts, they've got like 15 levels and you know, level one is very, very easy and basic and you can just iterate on there and you can very quickly go up to your level of ability and, you know, and, and iterate and work very hard. So it's just got a great, it's a great training. Um, and I absolutely love it. I have a ukulele. I've always wanted to learn how to play. Uh-huh. This sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, go get it. It's a, it's a, if, and, and they have a free mode. They let you practice for 10 minutes a day. And so if you want to practice for more than 10 minutes a day or, and this is kind of the brilliant part too, is they have pop songs. And so they have tablatures that they've transcribed for pop songs. So you can oh, nice. learn. Yeah. So, you know, you can, for, you can, you can learn um, from using popular music if you get their paid subscription. Mm. So it's actually, it's a great app. It's a great freemium model. Um, and, uh, from my perspective, worth every penny. And you can do a two week trial to see if you, if you want it. So if you want to learn the uke or you want to learn the bass or you want to lose, learn piano, go for it. Nice. Um, I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. Um, one is, so every year around my wife's birthday, we go down to St. George, Utah, which is a whole lot closer to where you're at, by the way. <laughs> and uh, we go through the parade of homes, which is just, uh, the home builders, you know, open up homes that they've built, some, some of the custom homes that they've done. And, uh, you know, you can go through and see what they've done. And, of course, we complain about all the decisions they made that, you know, aren't quite our taste. But um, it's it's a ton of fun. And uh, so I'm going to go ahead and just shout out about that. Um, I don't know if they do those everywhere or just here. I mean, they have one here in Utah Valley. They have one in Salt Lake County. Uh, you know, so you can go see houses that are built up there, you know, around here as well. But uh, that's just been a ton of fun. Um, and uh, the other one that I'm going to shout out about, and this is one that I've used um, when I traveled a bit. I usually wind up using it when I travel to Las Vegas, just because I can drive down in my car and uh, then I have a vehicle to get around in. Um, and I've been using VRBO for that. Um, mm -hmm. I actually got a deal. I'm going down to a conference at the end of March. Uh, in Las Vegas. And um, not that it would have mattered, I guess, a whole lot. But I got uh, a hotel room. It's actually a, uh, it's a vacation rental condo that's part of the MGM Grand um, campus. And I wound up getting that for like 70 bucks a night, mm -hmm. which is considerably less than staying in the conference hotel. And it's within <laughs> walking distance of the Tropicana where the conference is. Mm -hmm. So, you know. That was on VRBO? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually what we used to book. Well, we went to uh, Angel Fire to go skiing this uh, this Christmas. Oh, nice! Uh, and that was where that's where we we found our accommodations. Yeah, I think we did that. We did the family reunion last summer down by Zion National Park, mm -hmm. and we just got a giant house, and everybody came and stayed, and it, it was a ton of fun there too. So, yeah, 
great option. I've I've liked Airbnb less and less booking <sighs> that kind of thing. So I've I've wound up in some pretty sketchy places out of Airbnb. <laughs> yeah. Aren't they? Oh wait, no. I think um, VRBO is owned by HomeAway, right? Yeah. Okay. So. Anyway, well, thanks for coming, Charles, and talking to me. I know we went a little over, but um, I, I appreciate you coming and sharing your experience with us. Hey, no problem. Thank you, Charles. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up, folks, and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.